Father God, I pray that you'd send your very spirit into uh, this place this morning. Give to us, Lord, of your nature. Uh, give to us of your heart, um, your attitude, your expectations. Uh, condition us now, we pray in Jesus' name. We are here to receive from you uh, your word, your touch of power. Pray, Lord, for those who have come this morning needing uh, a touch of your power uh, in their bodies to receive now sovereignly as we progress. You're here to minister, Lord, so I pray that you touch people who are struggling with sickness. I pray, Lord, that you touch people struggling with enduring pain in their body. In the name of Jesus, brothers and sisters, we, uh, the community of Christ, bless you with a touch of healing today. Receive healing in your frame, in your joints, to make that headache go away, in your digestion, to sweeten your stomach. The Lord desires you to be strong and effective. Thanks, Lord, for free gifts. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, I just felt like doing that. If the Lord has uh, healed you of something, let me know at the end. Always good to get those stories. What's the opposite of faith? Fear is the opposite of faith. Uh, what's, what's the opposite of love? Hate? Apathy? Yeah, I'm, I'm, going, with, I'm going with apathy. Uh, I, I see the argument for hate. The problem is that uh, hate is at least something. It's passionate, you know, it's an opinion. And apathy is a complete vacuum, you know, it's, it's a denial. Uh, it's a rejection. Um, so often, uh, I think in our life, when we lack love, it's because we have apathy. It's not that we care negatively, which is hate. We just don't care at all, uh, which is apathy. Anyway, you can ruminate on that. Uh, flip it. What's the opposite of anger? What's the opposite of anger? Contentment. That's peace, joy, humility. Interesting. Yeah, that, 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 that's always an interesting one for me. Uh, anger is something that I've struggled with a lot in life. I've found my, my, uh, my opposite, my antidote to be thankfulness. But that's very close to contentment in a way that's a cousin to joy, you know. But yeah, it's interesting to think about. What's, uh, what's the opposite of judgment? You know, I mean that sort of critical judgment, that sort of rejection or exclusiveness. What's the opposite of that? Mercy, grace. Yeah, mercy and grace are, are sort of similar. Um, yeah, I, I'd, I'd probably go with grace. And, uh, and I think it's kind of spiritually mature for you guys to jump on that, mercy or, or grace. I think the world thinks the opposite of judgment is acceptance. But acceptance means like a complete suspension of all evaluation, which one, is impossible, and two, is often harmful. But grace is kind of like, well, no matter what, uh, you bring, whether it's good, whether it's bad, you know what, I'm going to love you, I'm going to engage you, we're going to be uh, together in this world, and so I'd probably go with grace or, or mercy or something like that. 
Sometimes at Blue Water we talk about the spirit of eh, which is uh, a spirit that we get locked into in life. Have you, ever, have you ever been in the grip of the spirit of eh? It's like, your life is filled with purpose. God has a plan for you. Eh. You know, I think eh is the big killer of souls on planet Earth. I think most of us die from eh. You know, we don't like passionately hate the purposes of God or the ways of God. We just don't really engage with them. It's a little bit like apathy, except it's tinged with cynicism, and it's, it's sort of a false security. When you're in the grip of the spirit of, eh, you feel like you don't really have to do anything, so that's kind of comfortable. Uh, so uh, what's, what's the opposite of the spirit of, eh? Passion, the spirit of, eh? I would accept that. What is it? Follow through. Oh, very nice. Very blue water. <laughs> Sophia throwing down. Because discipleship is follow through. Yeah. Very good. If there, if there was a sound that's the opposite of eh, what would it be? <laughs> all good answers. Give yourself a hand. You passed the quiz this morning. You'll probably all get into heaven. Very nice. Um, this is a, a, a short little sermon series on try, which is a very important word at Blue Water. I think try is the most important word, speaking of words. Uh, try is, is, I think, the most important word in the English language. And I think it's one of those words that God understands differently than we understand it. A lot of times we use the word try in conversation like, Somebody asks you to do something or consider something, and you'll say, I'll try. What does that mean? It means probably not. You know, try is the opposite of do in common usage. You know, you're not going to say, oh, I'll do that. You'll say, well, I'll try, which is a nice way of saying no way. No way will I do it. And so try has kind of gotten a bad name. Uh, but I think try is actually more potent, more powerful than do, than the word do, because you know, to do something, that presumes you're going to succeed. To try just means that you're going to do. <laughs> uh, and I think that faith is spelled T-R-Y. If you're a person of faith, that means you're trying the right things, the things that God has for you to do. I've preached probably a thousand sermons on that uh, in different places, so I'll leave it there. But, but uh, every once in a while, we need to refresh, try in our lives, because it's by trying that we make a difference uh, in the world, and making a difference is the world, in the world at bottom is, is the fundamental aspect of our calling in Christ. You are made to minister. You're made to be salt and light. And if salt loses its saltiness, Jesus says, then it's good for nothing except to be thrown out, which is a very severe thing to say. Jesus says, look, if you're not making a difference in the world, what are you doing? Why are you here? God created you to be creative. God created you to be fruitful, to have an effect on planet Earth. And if you're not doing that, it's kind of like you're not alive. You know, you're, you're eh. And nothing is worse than eh. You've at least got to try. And in some way, trying is the opposite of eh. Follow through is the opposite of eh. Whatever. This is going to sound really weird on the recording. Try is the opposite of eh. Somebody write that down. Email it out and see what responses you get. Uh, anyway, so this is a sermon series on trying, trying the things that we ought to, and we've been talking about different ways to make sure that we try in the world. Try speak, try ask. Uh, your message 
is your meaning in the world. Have a message to speak and speak it boldly. Ask provocative questions as Jesus did. We've talked about those things the last couple of sermons. I want to talk today about moving in the opposite spirit. Moving in the opposite spirit. And that word spirit is, is understandable and not understandable. When I say, oh, there's, um, you bring a lot of spirit to church today. What, what, what am I saying? What, what is it that you're bringing? Well, spirit is like, well, it's kind of energy. It's, it's what? It's, it's attitude, largely. I think spirit and attitude are often interchangeable. Uh, to bring a spirit to something is to, exp- is to manifest a certain attitude uh, with respect to something. We talk a lot about attitude at Blue Water Mission uh, because I think faith is attitude, Right? Faith is not what you believe. Faith is how you go about believing it. It's, it's how you do it. You know, uh, The demons believe all the right things, but they don't do the right things with what they believe. And, and Jesus tells parables about this. Like, look, if you know what to do, but you don't actually bring it, you don't actually do it, then you're like a man who builds house on sand. You're going through the motions, but with the first pressure, it's all going to topple and it's going to be terrible for you. No, you got to you got to follow through on my commands. Uh, you, have to, uh, you have to bring it. You have to uh, put it into action. Uh, attitude um, is the most contagious thing about you, and therefore, in terms of changing the world, um, it is perhaps the most powerful thing about you. What people need is not to know what you believe. What people need is to feel how you believe it. Uh, people are afraid universally uh, in the world. And so what they need is faith. And then they might ask you why you have it, right? They need the attitude of faith. And then they might ask you how that attitude happened for you. Are you following? Somebody say the opposite of eh. (laughs) We'll work on it. So attitude is powerful for you and it's powerful for those around you. As I go through the world in my daily life, one key question for me is what attitude do I have to bring in order to counter the spirit that I'm facing in life? I walk into a room and, and there's like a negative spirit in the room. There's like a negative attitude in the room. People in the room are in the grips of the spirit of eh or in the grips of the spirit of anger or in the grips of the spirit of apathy or or whatever it happens to be. And I have learned to sort of diagnose that in a few seconds and then ask myself, all right, well, what's the opposite of that spiritually? What's the opposite of that attitudinally? And then I try to bring the antidote spirit or the antidote attitude. And that's what I mean by moving in the opposite spirit. If there's a lot of anger in the room, then I'm going to come in and rather than catch that anger myself, the anger virus, I'm going to move in, you know, maybe thankfulness or, you know, or contentment or joy. There were a lot of good answers for that one. Are you following me? Moving in the opposite spirit. And what that does is it conditions the atmosphere. And then powerful things uh, can happen change the atmosphere. You got it? That's sort of generally uh, what I wanted to speak to this morning as it pertains to our life of try, because this is the deal. Very often, unless you first change the 
atmosphere in a place, unless you change the atmosphere in a situation, unless you change the atmosphere in a relationship, unless you do that first, then people can't really hear you, right? If they are stuck in eh, or they're stuck in anger, or they're stuck in fear, then the words you speak or the questions you ask fall on deaf ears. There's too much of a filter, an attitudinal filter. They're in the wrong mindset. Whatever words you use to describe the situation, you cannot get through. I think this is one of the reasons that in the Gospels, Jesus is always saying something like, those who have ears to hear, let them hear. Right? He's always ending his teachings with that. It's like, look, if you're in the right frame of mind, you'll probably get something good out of this teaching. If you're, if you're in the right attitude, right? if you're in the right spirit, then this is going to be revelational to you. But it may be that your ears are closed. Right? It may be that, that you're just attitudinally blocked, spiritually blocked. And so this is going to do you no good. I understand. God bless you. Uh, but I'm going to try to work with those who are working with me. You know, that, that sort of thing. Uh, so we've talked about, you know, try speak or try ask. Um, the words that you speak and the questions you ask can themselves be atmosphere shifters. Uh, but there are probably other ways to do it as well. I think, I think Jesus was a master at this stuff. Uh, and you know, a lot of the valuable things in life I just learned from reading about the life of, of Jesus. I watched the guy at work in the Gospels and, and I think, wait, what did he just do in that interaction? How did, how, did, how did he do that? How did he make that possible? There's, there's a story uh, that I, I really love. I've preached on it before from John chapter 4. There are some excerpts of it uh, in the back of your program. And it's going to be up here on the big board. Or you could just flip to John chapter 4 in your Bibles or in your uh, smartphones. This is the story of Jesus' interaction with a Samaritan woman at a well. So it's often called the story of the woman at the well. And uh, Jesus and, and his guys, his disciples, are, uh, are on a trip. They're, they're walking around the land of Israel, but their route has taken them through the land of, of Samaria. And maybe you know, if, uh, if you're a student of the Bible, the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. Uh, it's because the Samaritans essentially used to be Jews, but they married into the surrounding tribes, and so they were kind of half-breeds, so to speak. Uh, and um, it's not just they intermarried, but they adopted the religious customs of the tribes around them. And so their, their religion came to be this weird combination of things, and the Jews were kind of like, look, you've you gave up on God. You gave up on the one true God um, and, and his ways. And so there was a lot of tension between those groups. And so the Jews didn't walk through the land of the Samaritans as a rule. And, and that Jesus has been willing to do it says something about him right then. Um, they run out of food. Jesus sends the disciples off to get some. And he parks his... Uh, his uh, can I say Jesus' butt? No, that's, uh, that's disrespectful. His holy butt on, uh, on, a, on a bench near, near this well. Uh, it's quite famous a location because uh, it was a well that, uh, that Jacob had used. 
When a Samaritan woman came to, oh, and it's the middle of the day, I should tell you that. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. So it's Jesus and one Samaritan woman alone at this well. Uh, socially, that was very inappropriate uh, because a man and a woman did not hang out together alone in that culture. That was considered a little, a little racy. Um, and for them to be alone and for Jesus to speak to her would be almost an affront, almost an assault uh, in, in that situation. And there's this curious uh, fact that this woman has come to the well in the middle of the day to draw water, and uh, that's not when you, when you drew water. You drew water in the morning and the evening. So right away we know that this woman is a woman of ill repute, right? She's afraid to go out with the other woman. She's got something wrong with her. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman, a Samaritan and a woman. Uh, how can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, <clears throat> if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So Jesus just goes there, you know. Right away, he just says something that's provocative. He doesn't placate her. He doesn't explain himself. He just, like, provokes her with this really weird statement. Uh, Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater, greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? What she's doing here is saying, you're a freak. Plus, you know, she's getting in a little, a little racial dig. She's saying, this very famous well of our father Jacob belongs to the Samaritans. So, uh, hack off, Jewish guy. You know, there's a little subtext here. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Oh, come on, Jesus. Just, just speak plainly. But obviously he's, he's involving her in, in a web, right? I mean, again, he's just provoking her. He's not trying to, he's not trying to be nice, you know. He's trying to be engaging uh, in a way. It goes on, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water to labor for her and she has to come in the heat of the day presumably because the other women look down on her and so she's like well that would be nice I don't know with what attitude she said it but she at least said yeah, yeah that would be great I'd love to have water uh, that made it so I'd never be thirsty he told her go call your husband and come back ouch you know because it's kind of like he's saying this conversation is inappropriate and I could just imagine her reaction being like, yeah, I knew that at the beginning, which is what I said. You know, I'm a Samaritan and a woman. Now you want me to go get a chaperone? You rude so-and-so. Uh, but she gets through that and she comes back with, I have no husband. Uh, she replied, you know, there's, there's nobody to call. So, uh, so there. <laughs> Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have you." Have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. You're shacking up with him. You're sleeping around and you're kind of a loose woman. So yeah, you, you told me the truth. 
again, uh, not super nice. Um, and, and this woman has a really interesting reaction. I'm skipping some of the paragraphs of the story, but basically she says, wow, you know, how, how did you know that? And then she shifts the conversation. She asks a few religious questions that are a little bit off topic. She's either like, you know, changing the conversation because the subject matter has just become very uncomfortable for her. Or she's like, you know things supernaturally that makes you very interesting. You're, you know, what, what other tidbits might you have, preferably not about my moral life or my sexual mores, if, if you wouldn't mind. Uh, but she ends up just getting excited. And then leaving the water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, remember these were people who rejected her so much that she had to go work in the middle of the day, right? She was isolated in her own village, in her own society. But, but now after this interaction with Jesus, she goes and she rouses the village up. Hey, everybody, everybody, listen up. She gathers them in the middle of the day when they're all having their siestas. Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Provocative statement for her to make. Could this be the Messiah? Because Jesus had mentioned to her that he was the promised one, which is the first time in the Gospels he ever mentioned that openly. And it was to this woman of ill repute. And they came out of the town and made their way toward him. Toward him. The rest of the story is that the villagers engaged him in conversation. They decided to believe that he is the Messiah. The entire village pretty much comes to faith. And he stays in the village for two days just conversing with them. Just this revolutionary interaction. Anyway, I read that. There are so many good things. It's just kind of an evangelism story, if you want to use the fancy Christian-y word. It's definitely the story about Jesus making a difference through a conversation. He's being salt and light. He's changing the life of not only this woman of ill repute, but an entire village, just like in a weekend. It's just this amazing story. And I, and I read things like this, and, and I think, Okay, exactly how did he do that? Exactly what was going on here? Great story of conversion, life transformation, the whole nine yards. Jesus spoke. He spoke message words. He asked provocative questions. So, you know, he, we said, try speak, try ask. He did both uh, for sure. The dude was totally on it. But here's what I noticed mostly. This woman's attitude was changed. This woman's spirit was changed. He shifted the whole atmosphere. She went from being sort of unengaging, rude, and snarky to him. It's like, uh, I'm a Samaritan, and I'm a woman, sir, so I'm not speaking to you. That's where she started. And by the end of it, she's running to her village and speaking to people and basically becoming the gospel's first evangelist. For Jesus' sake. What the heck happened? How did her attitude shift that radically? Um, her spirit changed completely. She went from being socially evasive to socially engaged. She went from being snarky to super positive and filled with faith. Jesus shifted atmospheres in the entire village. Uh, and, and the story is no longer about Samaritan opposition and suspicion and tension. It's a story about openness to change. Um, 
how, how did he do it? And, and, and I don't know that I have the definitive answer. Uh, it's, it's a bunch of things and, and it's one thing all at the same time. Uh, the first thing I'd say, well, he tried to do it, right? Jesus, it's clear that from the moment he sits down and starts talking to this woman, he has an agenda because he's saying weird things to her, right? He's, he's trying to shift the atmosphere. So that's the first thing. And that's 80% of any, any story is the try. And so Jesus took the opportunity. He was tired. He was thirsty. He was hungry. He had to send his disciples to try and find some food to eat. Uh, but he did not let the moment of ministry pass him by. He found some way to engage her. Um, I think there's a key moment here where she gives him attitude. Look, I'm a Samaritan and I'm a woman, so don't, don't talk to me. You know, get your own dang drink. And he reacted in the opposite spirit. Well, I have something you want. You know, he didn't, he didn't respond to her with snarkiness or sarcasm or tension. He moved in the opposite spirit. Do you see it? You see what he did? She gave him negative, and he responded with positive. You know, I don't want to talk to you. Well, here's something interesting you might want to talk about, <laughs> you know. Gave, gave an open door where she had slammed a door. And everything, I think, flowed from that. He used open-ended questions. Uh, but I think one of the big parts of the story is what was left unsaid. By the time Jesus gets around to declaring that he, he knows that she is a woman of ill repute, that she sleeps around, that, that she's sort of morally desperate, by the time he says that, He's already established that he accepts her anyway. That he's willing to break all of the rules just to have the conversation. And so even though he says it, she's not particularly put off by the revelation. Often attitude is, is communicated by what is left unsaid in a conversation, if that makes sense. I don't know exactly how you express attitude, but he's done it. Right? He, he has... He has just brought the opposite spirit into this interaction. The spirit was one of rejection and tension, and Jesus manifested total comfortability. The dude was entirely copacetic with the whole thing. You get the impression that if she had thrown a rock at him and stormed off angry, he still wouldn't have been much bothered. It was worth a try uh, in his mind. Anyway, if you get it, snap your fingers. I can't tell you exactly what the formula is, but I know he was doing it. He was shifting the atmosphere. He was shifting the attitude, and he was coming up with ways to do it as he was having the conversation. I think a takeaway point for us is this. Look, evangelism is a big fancy word uh, that Christians sometimes use. Uh, and evangelism is, is, is about bringing someone to faith. Right? It's about getting them to see God differently, making a fundamental difference to them. Evangelism comes from the word for good news. It's about getting someone to receive the goodness of God rather than rejecting God or being apathetic toward God. Anyway, evangelism is often understood as changing someone's mind so as to change the person's spirit. 
I think often evangelism is about changing someone's spirit so that they can then change their mind. You have to start with sharing attitude. You have to start with sharing, for instance, the attitude of faith, which is an attitude primarily and not a set of beliefs. You don't start by explaining your beliefs to someone. You start by spreading your attitude of faith, of fearlessness, of, of love, of grace, whatever it is. You shift the atmosphere, and then suddenly ears are open to hear. But it starts with attitude ministry. It starts with moving in the opposite spirit. It starts with the shifting of atmosphere. And Jesus, of course, was a master at it. Sometimes with really awesome conversations. Sometimes he'd just do an outrageous miracle, and <laughs> that would certainly shift an atmosphere. But in a bad atmosphere, he couldn't do any miracles. Remember, he went to his hometown, and the atmosphere was so toxic there. They rejected him such that he couldn't do anything impressive. Atmosphere matters. And unless you change it, it's hard to do anything else. Um, so attitude shift, and then everything else follows. Because attitude and spirit, it's like, it's like a filter that keeps people from hearing and thinking clearly. What we have to do is impart an attitude or a spirit that brings freedom and clarity uh, to situations. Sometimes I ask myself, well, what's the feeling that's getting in the way? I'm talking to someone who's just not doing well, and I think, well, what, what, what's the attitude or the spirit that's toxifying the air right now? And what's the opposite of that, and how can I bring it into this situation? And then I have to find a way to demonstrate or de declare um, that opposite spirit. If you want to be an agent of change in the kingdom... Try attitude. That, that phrase, try attitude, I like it because it's a double entendre. It has two different meanings. Try attitude. What, what does that phrase mean? Well, uh, the first thing it means is try attitude. You have to have the attitude of try. And that's something that we talk about at Blue Water a lot. Every day you have to wake up and you have to get your try on. Everybody say, get my try on. So whatever else happens in that day, dang it, you're going to try. Are you going to succeed? Are you going to fail? I don't know, but you are going to try, are you not? Because you are people of faith, and Jesus called you to be difference makers. And if you don't try, you're like some fool who goes to the trouble of building a house on sand, and it's all going to fall apart for you at the most inopportune moment. No, you are people of try. Am I talking truth? That's a really lame response. <laughs> Am I talking truth, people? Yeah. I'm trying. I'm trying. Um, so, you know, try attitude. The attitude of try is absolutely vital, absolutely clear. But there's also, like, try attitude. Like, if you don't know what's going to work or, or why stuff is not working, well, try attitude. Try to, to manifest a different attitude or to bring the opposite spirit into a situation. And then the atmosphere will shift. And then suddenly ears are open, eyes are open, possibilities are open now. And it all begins with an attitude shift, which is a spiritual shift, right? You kind of bring the opposite of whatever it is that's weighing the situation down. Uh, again, attitude is the most contagious thing about you. 
you know. If you have a bad attitude in the office, you can spread it like wildfire. If you have a good, positive attitude in the office, you can spread that like wildfire too. Just make sure you're the agent of change uh, because you're carrying the love and the truth of Christ. Uh, again, faith attitude is probably the big one because the whole world is afraid. They live in an attitude of fear and insecurity. If you live in the attitude of faith and confidence, you automatically are a difference maker. People will automatically look to you because there'll be something incredibly different about you. So that one is off the top. Uh, that's a gimme. But I have a few tips that I'd like to close with. The life of attitude when it comes to trying attitude, being a difference maker through attitude. Uh, tip number one, nice, quote unquote, the attitude of nice is a relatively weak attitude. Christians are nice people, and it usually does not help. Uh, and that sounds like a terrible thing to say. It sounds like a mean thing to say. Uh, but I just found some value in saying it as, as a little bit of, of corrective. Because I have, I don't know about you, but I found it very hard to nice people into the kingdom of God. I found it very hard to make people change their behavior by being nice. And I've actually read research on this. I've gone out and I've read the sociology and the psychology on it and won't review all of that nonsense that, you know, I, I like to read academic papers. I'm just weird that way. Uh, but here's, here's like the bottom line. People read niceness as weakness. Uh, and and one, of, one of the stories goes like this. If, if, you're, if you're trying really hard to be nice to me, then I read that as, oh, I scare you. You're trying to make yourself secure by seeming very non-threatening, by seeming nice. Uh, and why I may like that, and I may well like you and approve of you for doing it, I'm not going to trust you because you've signaled weakness. And I'm not saying that that's how I want the world to be, I'm just saying that that seems to be how the world operates. That really nice people are liked and simultaneously looked down upon. Um, and so nobody will hear them. Nobody will hear them. And so the nicest people sometimes have the smallest voice in the community, which is a shame because you'd want the nice people to run things, would you not? Uh, but that's just kind of how the world works because we're all into hierarchies and stuff like that. Uh, so it's just, it's just hard. I'm not saying don't be nice. Please, be nice. In particular, be nice to me. <laughs> you know, be nice to everyone. But, but just don't merely be nice. You have to be nice plus something else if you want to shift an atmosphere. And, and that's just, that's just the, the, the way it is. Jesus certainly was not nice to this Samaritan woman, right? He was not concerned with a nice, smooth interaction. He was not concerned with making her feel better about herself, was, was he? Not, not, not directly. He was concerned with shifting a whole life attitude. And that's a different agenda. And it requires a little bit more force. And so he said some rude things, as did she a little bit. And ultimately, that got them there. Anyway, just food for thought. Tip number two, uh, it's often helpful to be inappropriate in life. 
Everybody say inappropriate. Look to the person to your left and right and say, I'm entirely willing to be inappropriate. <laughs> Go ahead, yeah. Very uncomfortable, right? Right? So there, you have practiced the point, and, uh, and several people have just walked out. Um, but, but, you know, but, but point, point made, uh, and, and another sort of parenthetical statement, nice people have a hard time being inappropriate. Really nice people have a hard time risking inappropriateness. Ah, oh, screw it, just be inappropriate. You know, just try and, and see where it leads you. You'll get better at it as, as you go. Um, Jesus was way inappropriate with the Samaritan woman, obviously. In like six different ways, uh, he was inappropriate. You have to be ready to be shocking. You have to, you have to be able to rock the boat. And you know what's hard to minister to your biological family? Have, has, has anybody had this experience? Like later in life, you come to Jesus, your whole life gets revolutionized, and then you go home and you just fall back into the old patterns. You know, and it's like, there's a difference in you, but you can't make your family see it. Why, why is that? Well, it's because, you know, families have a way of doing things. You know, and you were taught that way from the time you were very little. And it's difficult for you to be inappropriate with your family because you are entirely programmed to not be inappropriate with your family. And so what you have to do is rock the boat in your family, which is an inherently threatening thing since you've been trained from a young age not to. So that's just one example of how inappropriateness can shut us down because you actually you want to make a difference for your family, don't you? I mean, above all people, they're the people that you want to make a difference for. Uh, there are rules like that in general relating uh, as well. I think a lot of those, I think one key to being inappropriate is to ask the inappropriate question or just the truthful question. Why? Why is that important to you? What? Why do you say that? You know, that can come across as a little bit shocking, but question asking is often a key to, to getting the inappropriateness flowing, so to speak, and changing atmospheres. That's what we talked about last week. If you missed the sermon, you can go get it online. Just don't wait around for the perfect opportunity. And being inappropriate and shocking or a little bit rude, a little bit edgy, in a conversation or a situation can open doors that just waiting around for the perfect moment uh, would never see open. Um, the key to being inappropriate, and you can write this down, the key to being inappropriate is to be totally comfortable with it. Uh, I had a, a friend um, at uh, a, a previous church uh, we were sort of coming up as disciples together, and she was like, I'm never inappropriate. I'm so nice, it sucks. And, uh, and she thought, you know, I'm always concerned with how people uh, see me and stuff like that. Uh, and so uh, she decided that she would not wear any makeup for a while, uh, which was sort of shocking in her world. And I, you know, I remember saying to her, yeah, I, I never wear wake makeup, and it doesn't really change things for me. And she was like, you're right. Uh, so, uh, so she went to her medicine cabinet and she got a big bandage and put it across her nose and then went to, went to school the next day with this big bandage across her nose. And of course, what did people ask? What happened? And, and how did she respond? She said nothing. 
And I thought, that's just brilliant. That's brilliant. What she was, do- what she was doing is sort of exercising her inappropriateness muscles. Those are going to be like mini awkward conversations. And I'm just going to get really good at them. You know, and, and she went to, uh, gradually she, she increased her level of inappropriateness until she could actually have real conversations with people. She wasn't, uh, wasn't afraid of being a little bit shocking. Uh, you, get, you get the idea. Uh, tip, tip number three, the battle, battle for attitude often begins at home with your most intimate group, your family, your marriage, with your kids, the roommates you live with, or the people you spend eight or nine hours with a day in, in the office. This, this may sound a little bit off topic, but we'll end with this. Um, often our families, our tight social groups, the people that we see ev- every day, they're how we get our programming, right? They, they, they define home for us, the kind of where we live, the air that, that we breathe. So if, you're, if your home, whether it's your biological family or your marriage or your workmates or whatever it is, the place where you live, if the attitude is consistently toxic in that place, life will be very difficult for you. You will find yourself going with the flow. It will seep into your bones. You know, have you ever worked in the negative office, anybody? How fun is that? Have you ever worked in a negative office for a long time and then said to yourself, I got to get out of here. It's killing me, right? And what that means is that the office has changed you, has defined your attitude. You have not changed the office. And so you're running for your life. At least you're smart enough to realize what's going on, you know. Uh, and sometimes we can't change, you know, every office that we're in, uh, literally or, or metaphorically, but, but, but you have to realize what's going on. And it's in those fundamental circles. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's your office. That's the place to learn how to shift atmospheres. That's the place for all of us to start. If your marriage has a toxic atmosphere, everything is going to be hard for, for you. You have to shift that atmosphere. And it's the attitude that needs to be shifted first. Before, before your communication and skills improve, your atmosphere has to improve. You have to shift things spiritually to even get a start on, on stuff like that. So what is the prevailing spirit in that relationship for you? What is the prevailing spirit in your office? That's a great place to start this exercise. Think about it. Or, you know, maybe it's not your office. Maybe it's your living situation, your roommates. Whatever it is. But you know what I'm talking about. That fundamental group, right? What's the prevailing spirit in that place? Do you need to shift it? How are you going to pull that off? And if, you, if nothing else, if today you walk away with a clear idea of that question, great. And then you can talk to God about doing it. But once the atmosphere shifts then everything becomes possible. If you can shift it to an atmosphere of faith, you're moving in the kingdom. Lives can truly be changed uh, at that point. People bond over the strangest things. Sometimes in families, people bond over rejection or trauma. Sometimes in offices, people bond over cynicism. Ah, the boss sucks. Yes, let's all be friends. What? But that, am I right? That happens, 
and you bond over how much your boss sucks. Or Christians will bond over how much God has disappointed them. You know, it, and that is death, right? The atmosphere is toxic in that situation. And so in those fundamental places, we need to be atmosphere shifters. And you just change the tone, change the spirit. That's your first battle. After that battle is won, there will be others, but they will be far easier. It comforts me to know that Jesus' biological family thought he was crazy. Right? Mark 3, they come to him. He's in, a, he's in a little ministry time, and they come to him because they thought he was out of his mind. He was going around thinking he could do miracles and offending all the religious leaders. And his family was like, we got to save Jesus. He's finally done it. He's been talking weird for years, but now he's just off the edge. And Jesus said, well, who are my families? Who are my, who, who are my brothers and sisters? Is it not, you know, the people to whom and with whom I minister? And he sort of dissed his family. He got some objectivity vis-a-vis -vis his family. I mentioned before that Jesus went to his hometown, and he could do no miracles there because they were all offended at him. Jesus was influenced by atmosphere just like we are. Eventually, he circled back to his family and converted a lot of them, as far as we know. His, his mother Mary, who originally thought he was crazy, became one of his chief followers and much honored in the early church. His brother James, who rejected him at the beginning, became one of the chief apostles of the church of Jerusalem. So he got back to them. He figured it out. But it was clear that he was very aware of the atmospheres in which he, he lived and their effect on him and what he had to do to change them. Father God, I pray that you would speak to us this morning about where we need to shift atmospheres in our world. Where are the toxic pockets that have influenced us and corrupted our own spirit, our own attitudes? Let's start there, Lord. Speak, Lord. How have we fallen prey to the prevailing spirit? instead of overcoming with the spirit of God, the spirit of joy and thankfulness and grace and above all faith. And I pray, Lord, as we identify those pockets, I pray that you give us ideas about shifting attitude Give them to us right now and give them to us in the moment. I pray that we would move in spirit of faith and grace at all times. I pray that we'd find a way to be expectant. Faith is the spirit that says, God could do something wonderful here right now. And I pray, Lord, that you would show us uh, the other places in our life where we could be atmosphere shifters. We could be an agent of a better spirit. Give us words, give us questions, give us things to say and things not to say. Edit our words, Lord. Give us the body language. Give us gestures. Give us words of knowledge and miracles to shift the attitudes of everyone around. And Father, 
uh, as we follow Jesus, we commit to make Blue Water Mission a place of try attitude and faith atmosphere. I pray, Lord, that for one another, we would be agents of expectation and freedom. That here we would always have ears to hear and eyes to see. In Jesus' name, amen.